Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode contains descriptions of physical and sexual abuse that some listeners may find distressing. I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. This week, a story that we fought in the courts for over a year to be able to tell you. I'm handing over to journalist Louise Tickle. Hi. Hello. Hello. I thought you'd like to know we've got the judgment. (laughs) Okay. The appeal was dismissed. It's going to be published. Oh, my God. Until recently, everything I'm about to tell you was a secret. A secret that a once powerful man fought hard to make sure would never see the light of day. And to reveal it, I'm going to tell you a story about our family courts. The Court of Appeal has said it can now be revealed that a family court judge accepted that the former Conservative Minister Andrew Griffiths had raped his wife. Politics and power. Control and abuse. Findings were initially subject to a privacy order. The two journalists argued the judge's ruling was in the public interest. I'm Louise Tickle and for over a year now I've been trying to report this story about how Andrew Griffiths, a former Conservative MP and government minister, tried to manipulate the privacy of the family courts to cover up a judge's findings of domestic violence, coercive control and rape. In this episode of The Slow Newscast, Griffiths v Griffiths and a fight to tell the truth. My name is Andrew Griffiths, and in 2010, I was elected as your Member of Parliament for Burton and Utoxeter. This is a great place to live. It's a great place to bring up your kids and a great place to do business. How did you meet Andrew Griffiths? I first met Andrew at the um, Open Primary, um, which was held at Burton Albion, back in November 2006. He was one of four candidates that night. This is Kate Griffiths. She's the current Conservative MP for Burton and Utoxeter. She was 36 when she met Andrew Griffiths. He was a politician who was going places. Back then, he was Chief of Staff to Theresa May, way back before she became Prime Minister, and he was vying to be Burton's Conservative Member of Parliament. 
I was working for a company based over in Derby, um, an electronics company, and I was um, their logistics manager. And I'd been a member of the local Conservative Association for many, many years since, since I was a teenager. What did you think of him? I think everybody in the room was, was impressed. He came over very well, uh, very personable, very likeable, um, and, and so much so that he won it on the first ballot. She was so impressed, she joined his campaign team. And 18 months after that first meeting, he finally persuaded her to go out for a drink. We had a lovely evening. He was great, he was funny, he was a charmer. And uh, yeah, I, I just thought he was an all-round good guy. He was the perfect boyfriend. He was very attentive. We went on lots of lovely dates, meals out, um, and everything seemed completely normal. It sounds really nice. It was. <laughs> it took Kate a while to agree to that first date, because back then, Andrew had a girlfriend. A fiancé, in fact. But he convinced Kate that while, yes, he was still living with this woman, they were, in fact, living separate lives. And he was so convincing with this that after a period of quite some time, I thought that this must be true. Within six months, things had got serious. He started telling me very early on in the relationship that um, he'd never felt like this before, we were going to get married, one day I was going to be Mrs Griffiths. It was... And he was... With hindsight, looking back on it, he was constantly texting me. Did it just feel really attentive and It lovely? did. Did you love him? Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't have ended up in the relationship and marrying him if I didn't love him. And did you trust him? I trusted him for a significant period at the start of the relationship. Professionally, things were going well for Andrew Griffiths. In May 2010, he became an MP, winning the Burton seat for the Conservatives. It was amazing. It was, um, it was a fantastic, fantastic victory. Um, the seat had been held by Labour for some years then. And it was just a really, you know, a, a massive celebration that night. And we were very much together. Everyone knew we were together. Three years later, the couple were married at the church attached to the Houses of Parliament, St Mary's Undercroft. The pictures of your wedding do look absolutely beautiful. It was beautiful. The wedding itself was beautiful. Um, but even then, I, even though I loved him, I do actually remember, even on my wedding day, thinking, am I doing the right thing? But I put that down to wedding nerves because so many people say the same thing, don't they? On their wedding day, they have nerves, they wonder if it's right. Andrew's political star was rising. He seemed focused on women's rights and equality. He helped to found the organisation Women to Win in 2005, encouraging more Conservative women to stand for Parliament. He focused on gender equality at the top of business, and he launched a campaign to encourage more fathers to take paternity leave. In 2018, after Theresa May became Prime Minister, he campaigned for the upskirting bill to become law, to ban the surreptitious taking of sexually intrusive photographs. And in the background, there was Kate who had slotted happily into the role of constituency wife. Being married to an MP and later a minister, mm. what's that like? It's crazy busy. 
Um, I worked full time as well. Um, I, I obviously did everything at home. You know, I was the homemaker. I did all that. I looked after Andrew. I did everything for him, down to packing his bag to go back down to London each week, down to the last cuffling. You know, I did absolutely everything. And and he often used to say, "I couldn't do this job without you." Um, but it means you have very little free time, very little time to yourself. And I knew that was the role that was expected of me, and I was happy to do it. It was his, you know, lifetime ambition to be a member of Parliament, and I was happy to support that because I loved him. Were you proud of him? Very, very proud of him. Yeah. In 2016, immediately after Theresa May became Prime Minister, Andrew Griffiths was made a government whip. Then, in early 2018, he was appointed as a minister at the Department of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. At home and in Parliament, the couple had a busy social life. Andrew was earning good money, over £100,000 a year. And in 2018, both in their mid-40s, Andrew and Kate Griffiths had a much-wanted baby. To outsiders, things seemed pretty great. What do you think your life looked like then to strangers? Ideal. We had lots of people saying, you're the ideal couple. We'd be out in public, you know, holding hands, smiling, laughing, joking. It, it was very much, a, a, his public persona was very different to his, to his private one. Do you think it was an image that he constructed? Yes, I think a lot of it when we were out there in the public eye was, looking back on it now, probably a little bit over the top. It was, he was very affectionate in public. He was behind closed doors. It was very, very different. The relationship had become difficult. Andrew had changed. He wasn't interested in my life. In fact, he constantly, um, this is some years into the relationship, he constantly used to sort of belittle my job, what I did, my salary, everything. To the point where I used to be a very confident, happy, outgoing. I can see that by the end of that relationship, I'd just become a sort of shadow of my former self. I got to the point where I hardly said anything when we went out um, because... When I did, we'd get back in the car and he'd say, why did you say that, you stupid? Uh, and it just became easier to just go out, sit there quietly, smile, look the part of the dutiful wife, and get on with the evening. Around Burton, Andrew was a big cheese. Remember, he'd taken the seat from Labour, winning it three times in a row, making it a safe seat for the Conservatives. And he worked really hard for small business, Burton has several breweries. It's a big point of pride and business for the area. And in 2015, he was voted Parliamentarian of the Year by the Campaign for Real Ale for his commitment to reducing taxes on alcohol. In Westminster, he sat on two committees. On one of them, the Committee of Selection, the members nominate which MPs should sit on the various committees which exist to hold government to account. It might sound dull, but it is in fact really powerful. But it really wouldn't be that surprising if you had never heard of Andrew Griffiths. That is, until 2018, the year his private life exploded all over the front pages of the British tabloids. I'm the daddy with the power. I'm the daddy with the naughtiest streak. I want to be able to lift your skirts over dinner and show my friends. In June that year, Andrew Griffiths began messaging one of his constituents, a 28-year-old barmaid called Imogen Trahan. If you need money, you just need to ask. It's fine, baby. Tell me what you want and I will arrange something. But I'm going to need something fucking filthy to put a smile on my face first. The next day, June the 17th, his first Father's Day as a new dad, he appeared on a Sunday politics show 
and that afternoon tweeted a message to his followers thanking the NHS for the care they'd given his newborn child. At the same time, he was messaging Imogen and a friend of hers. Over the course of two months, around 2,000 messages in total. Messages like this one, which the MP Jess Phillips read out in Parliament. She's so cute, so sweet, I can't wait to beat her. Can she take a beating? Not my words, Mr Speaker, the words of the MP for Burton, while barraging two of his female constituents with thousands of sexual text messages. And this one. Daddy has been out making speeches and running the country, but what he really wants to be doing is licking naughty girls' pussies. This is Alan Selby. He's a former journalist. I was a reporter on the Sunday Mirror when we broke the Andrew Griffiths story. He's the reason we know about the texts. And what was the first you heard about a Conservative minister sending sexual text messages to two young women? How did that whole story come about? Well, it was actually exactly how you imagine a kind of national newspaper story comes in. Um, Somebody rang the news desk uh, and said they had some some quite explosive claims to make about a Conservative minister. So he went to a pub in Burton to meet Imogen to find out if the allegations were true. After we'd kind of agreed, you know, a certain amount of confidentiality before we could go through things properly and and discuss how we'd like to approach the story, we basically got the the text out and started reading through them. How did you, did she just take her phone out? Yeah. Imogen showed Alan two months' worth of messages... Messages between her, her friend and Andrew Griffiths, sent via Facebook and WhatsApp. That's what really surprised me. It was was so unguarded. It was almost almost as if he didn't really care about getting caught. What did you think when you first saw the actual sex messages that were coming through? What were they like? I mean, at first glance, there was so many messages... The more you delved into it, the more it became actually actually quite disgusting. Um, so whatever kind of titillation or amusement there first was, it, it got to the point where actually, you know, looking through these more and more, this is, this is seriously disgusting and, well, abusive. Signs of something that was... <clears throat> altogether unsavoury to be charitable and consenting adults say a lot of things to each other and to an extent these were consenting adults taking part in something that could be described as salacious or or not to everybody's taste Um, but there were several points when the people on the receiving end of these messages said stop um because it had crossed a line into something that was clearly not what they were interested in and clearly quite concerning to them. This was for the gratification of somebody who enjoyed demonstrating the power that they held over somebody. And beyond that, I mean, you had graphic depictions of boasts that he'd beaten women in the past, which... I mean, in no right-thinking person's mind, is that acceptable? And he just kept sending those messages. He did. He did. Um, I mean, he'd, he'd apologise, 
you could see that he'd uh, he'd, he'd realise maybe that he wasn't going to be getting more of what he wanted um, and would would kind of calm down for a bit. But I don't think it was anything. I don't think I don't think it was inspired by anything other than a kind of transactional desire to keep getting what he wanted. The Sunday Mirror, satisfied that the sexts went beyond mere titillation, that they showed a minister abusing his power and position, decided to publish. And on Saturday the 14th of July 2018, a few hours before Alan's article went live, Andrew Griffiths resigned his ministerial post. Hello, good evening. A Midlands MP has resigned from his role as a government minister for sending messages of a sexual nature to two female constituents. Were you surprised he didn't resign as an MP? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking frankly, I think the brass neck of it is astonishing. I think it just demonstrates the kind of person that he is. There was, at the time, a deep level of frustration locally not just among voters, but among quite senior people, um, Labour and Conservative, uh, in Burton, that he wouldn't go, that he was just hanging around. Um, I think you can see this is a person who refuses to accept that they've done anything wrong and ultimately was only going to go if he was pushed. Our baby was three months old at the time. Um, I was at home. I'd just had a friend round. I'm back talking with Kate Griffiths. We're in a hotel room in the week before Christmas. Andrew had gone down to the office. I think he'd got a meeting. I remember my friend leaving. Um, I was giving our baby a bottle. And I remember him suddenly, he, he came bursting into the house, um, came straight up to me. And, and, and he was so matter-of-fact. And he just said, I've got some really bad news. I thought, oh, God, what's happened now? And then he said, quite calmly, I've been sexting two women in the constituency. I've just had a phone call from the Mirror. The story will break on the news tomorrow. And then it was going to be in the Sunday papers. I remember him saying, and it's really awful stuff, Kate. You're going to be horrified. And I sat there <laughs> with the bottle in my hand. And then he said, aren't you going to say anything? I remember this quite clearly because I was so calm. And I remember saying to him, no, not really, because I've been waiting for it for years. My overwhelming feeling was this enormous sense of relief because I knew I wasn't going to be coming back. I knew I was taking my baby, getting out and leaving an abusive relationship. When the news broke, East Staffordshire Conservative Association stood by their MP. Soon, though, he was back in the news again when The Guardian published bullying allegations from three people who had worked closely with Andrew. He was later cleared of wrongdoing by the Parliamentary Standards Committee in regards to the sexting. The commissioner found no evidence that he had sent the messages while he was engaged in parliamentary business. Meanwhile, Andrew, still a member of Parliament, checked himself into the Priory. Three months later, he re-emerged into public view in November after he approached the Sunday Times with the offer of an exclusive interview. 
Burton MP Andrew Griffiths has spoken for the first time about his sex text shame, saying he suffered a breakdown which led to him spending 31 days in a psychiatric hospital as he struggled to come to terms with being abused as a child. Tory Mr Griffiths, 48, says he intended to take his own life after he was exposed for sending texts, many of which were sexually explicit, to barmaid Imogen Trahan and her friend. The Sunday Times exclusive, illustrated with a photograph of Andrew with his wife and baby, painted the picture of a man who had suffered a terrible mental health episode. He claimed the behaviour was completely out of character. He now recognised he told the Sunday Times journalist that he had terribly wronged his family, the young women he sexted, and his party. He told the journalist that he was determined to fight for his political career and was working on his marriage. When in reality... I'd left him before that story even broke on the news. After the Sunday Times published, the Conservative Party dropped its investigation into his conduct, citing concerns for his mental health. And all this while, behind the scenes... He was sending me threatening messages almost daily, saying how I'd got to be seen to be standing by him, believing what he was saying about his mental health in order for him to save his job. What kind of things did they say? That if I didn't support him, I would be I would be homeless, I'd have no money, it would be the end of me, I wouldn't be able to support my child, but, but, but that, that I would lose everything. There was a question for the party. Could he stay working as an MP? On the 11th of November 2019, 18 months after the scandal, the local party association voted on whether he could be their conservative candidate at the next general election. Members were split right down the middle, 117 in favour, 117 against. So um, he joined Renew Church in Utoxeter and he got a large number of the congregation there to, to become members of the local association. And... I think it was it was their votes on the night that 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 made it a a draw. It was a level draw on the night. Has he always been a believer? N not when I was with him. So when did the notion come about that you might stand? So I'd actually been thinking about it in discussions with people for for a few months at that point, and I thought you only actually in life regret those opportunities you don't take. And so I thought, yes, I can do this. I know I can. I can do a good job, work hard, do this job and give my child a good life. So Kate put her name in the hat. Andrew stepped aside and Kate Griffiths was selected as the candidate for Burton. This is her giving an interview to the BBC in November 2019. Honestly think I'm a candidate with integrity, resilience, a total commitment to the area that I live in. I love this place, it's my home, it's my family's home. And I thought that Burton and Utoxter deserved better representation, more honest, someone with integrity. That's why I put myself forward. And she won. Publicly, their fortunes had switched. Kate was now the MP for Burton. Andrew faded into the background. It was a scandal that had upended his public life and his private one, where a very secret battle began. In the early months of their separation, Kate and Andrew Griffiths had come to an informal arrangement for him to see their child. 
he was spending time regularly with their baby, supervised by relatives. But that arrangement soon broke down. In June 2019, while Andrew Griffiths was still Burton's MP, Kate found out that he had applied to the family court over access. All I knew was that I'd got to fight to protect my child. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's the 19th of January, 2021. The UK is in the grip of the pandemic and we're all working from home. An email arrives in my inbox. It's an email I'd been waiting for. It's from the family court in Derby. I remember the email. For some reason I can remember I was sitting at the kitchen table reading it. Brian Farmer is a reporter at the Press Association who, for around a decade now, has been based at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Brian is the sort of journalist who just endears himself to everyone. He's disarming charming and, well, you just want to tell him things. I can't really tell you how I found out about it, but it started from me, for some reason, reading about Andrew Griffith's sexting scandal. And I remember thinking, 
I bet they're in a family court. Because in reality, all the clues were there mm. two years ago. Mm. Um, Mrs. Griffiths had talked about divorcing. Yeah. And she'd said, I can't talk anymore because there are legal proceedings. I'm going through a divorce. The divorce is almost finalised now. And obviously for that reason, I'm not able to go into details about it. And she'd stood for MP on a domestic abuse platform, hadn't she? I mean, really, journalists covering it then should have immediately twigged that they're in a family court. (laughs) If you've sat in enough family courts, you know that separated couples are likely to end up there because they're battling over a child, either fighting to protect them from a parent they believe is a danger or fighting to gain access to their child. Andrew Griffiths had been exposed in a sexting scandal. Following that, several allegations of bullying had emerged. And so... It felt likely to us that there might be other revelations to emerge in a family court. But family courts hear cases in private. The details of what goes on in front of the judge can't be reported, nor can a journalist say who is involved. If you do, it's a contempt of court. And that law exists rightly to protect children and their right to a private life. These are not, after all, criminal courts. They're civil ones. But given that this case involved an MP and a former MP, two people who have or have had power over all our lives, we thought there might be something there. So Brian and I asked the judge if she would release the judgment to us, two journalists, in confidence. And eventually, the judge said yes. And that's how I came to be sitting in my study on a cold January day in the middle of lockdown, reading the findings in Griffiths v Griffiths. I remember like it was like a falling off my chair moment, thinking I'm not sure I've ever found anything quite as... Uh, what shocked you about uh, it? Because you've been to loads of family court cases. What shocked you about this one? Well, the fact that you're, you've got a government, someone who's a government minister who's been found to rape someone, I mean... On the balance of probabilities. Well, on the balance of probabilities too, but uh, and, and I'm not saying he was convicted of rape, but he's been found to have committed rape. I mean, you, you, you know, domestic rape is such a big issue written such a lot about domestic mm. rape, domestic rape in a family court setting. But also, you know, the, the abuse of women is such a big issue. The findings in the judgment were astonishing. But there's an important thing to understand about the family courts. A criminal conviction for rape means a jury has decided they are sure, beyond reasonable doubt, that it's happened. The civil standard of proof, which many of our courts, including family courts, use, is different. To prove an allegation, you have to convince a judge that something is more likely than not to have happened. And this is the test Her Honour Judge Williscroft applied to make her findings. I accept that Kate Griffiths proved in her oral evidence to me that he did rape her when sexual intercourse took place when he had already penetrated her when she was asleep. This isn't doing a second job or using his office to run a business. This is... You know, monumentally serious behaviour. She describes crying as this happened and his never apologising or recognising what he had done. Sometimes, she said, she would grit her teeth and let him get on with it. On others, he would stop. Indeed, on occasion, he would be cross and kick her out of bed. She was, I find, humiliated by this. The fact that it was starting when she was asleep, it just seemed to be so... 
Just and carrying on after horrific. she woke up, after she was crying. The judgment was a remarkable, disturbing document. It detailed how this politician had been abusing, threatening and frightening his wife for almost the entirety of their relationship. He was controlling. I was concerned about an occasion they were both to attend a concert. Andrew Griffiths took the keys off his wife, knew she was crying and upset and did not want to go and did not return them until after the event. He didn't like what I was wearing. My skirt wasn't short enough and he started getting quite angry about it. He reduced me to tears and I remember him taking my phone off me, snatching my car keys off me, holding them high up. He was taller than me. I, I said, please go without me, I don't want to come now. Then he bundled me out of the door, pushed me outside and said, you're coming with me. He assaulted her after the Smallwood Manor ball. He threw food and a tray at her. He accepts then he has been abusive to her verbally and hurt her when drunk. We had a really lovely evening, lovely meal, dancing. And at the end of the evening, we had a drink in the bar. He was at the bar ordering some drinks. I remember a lady was also at the bar and I remember him leaning across and saying something. I, I couldn't hear what it was. I was too far away. She got her drinks, came over to me and, and said, how can you bear to be with that man? And I sat there in shock and I thought, what on earth has he said? He came over, I asked him, he wouldn't answer. So I said, well, I'm going to bed, Andrew. And I'd been in the room about 10 minutes and he came flying in um, and he flew at me and pinned me against the wall by my throat and told me never to question him again in public, not to embarrass him like that. And I was genuinely scared. I've never experienced anything like that in my life before. And then the next morning... He acted as if it hadn't happened and he blamed it on drink. She alleged in an argument he knelt on her on the sofa and put his hands on her throat, trying to strangle her. Was he putting pressure on your throat? Yes. The assaults continued while she was pregnant. He described an occasion just before the child's birth when he denied pushing his wife, saying she was goading and provoking him and he put his hands on her in complete frustration. My finding is he pushed her and she fell onto the bed. And I remember saying to him, go on, hit me whilst I'm pregnant then. And that stopped him. And this was just a week before I gave birth. It was the first indication to me that there was no regard for our baby. I always thought it would... <laughs> okay. Ooh. There was sexual coercion. She told the court he would be persistent and pestering, told her, I always get what I want, and put pressure on her to agree to this at the start. She stated he had trained her in what he wanted. After a few months, he, he started wanting to do things that I wasn't particularly comfortable with, but he was very persistent, to the point of just completely wearing you down. Um, and so I agreed. It, made, it just made for an easier life. He told me that I was frigid, I was a prude, you know, everybody does this. What would happen if you resisted, if you didn't want to do the stuff he wanted? Well, to start with, earlier on in the relationship, he'd just go into a mood, I'd get the silent treatment. But later on in the relationship, he'd get deeply, you know, deeply unpleasant, um, even to the point of, I remember him actually kicking me out of the bed. 
It seems to me that it never crossed Andrew Griffith's mind that she would not do what he liked her to do. It was all about Andrew and what he wanted. Always. He described how he had engaged in what he described as sexually risky behaviour for many years as he enjoyed it. This included the two women in 2010 and 11, one of whom he had a long relationship with. He accepted he had threatened this woman he would go to the press if she spoke to his wife. As all of this was happening behind closed doors at home, Andrew Griffiths was appointed a government whip and given the role of minister. And as a judge has found, using his power and his status to silence the people closest to him. His constant diminishing of her by describing her as exaggerated and theatrical in court and in his evidence will have undermined her perception of situations. I remember saying to him, I'm going to go to the police. And he said to me, nobody's going to believe you, Kate. I'm the Member of Parliament. I'm a blue-eyed boy. Everyone thinks I'm fabulous. I have a good relationship with businesses, police. Nobody will believe you. And then I remember him quite clearly saying to me, and anyway, you'd be nothing without me. It, that sort of stops you. And I thought, why would they believe me? Out there, in public, he is. He's doing a... Because he was a good MP. He worked hard. He's right. They won't believe me. And where does that leave you? Trapped in a relationship. And that sounds crazy. And I must admit, I'm one of, I'm one of these people that, you know, before I ever got into that this relationship, I, I would read stuff in the papers about women who'd been in this sort of situation. And I would always think, why didn't you leave? But when you're actually in the situation... It's very different. You know, you're in love with this person, even though you've seen the really unpleasant side of them, and you always want to believe the excuse you're given and the promise that it won't happen again. And you don't want people out there to think that you've not got this perfect life. And that sounds really lonely. Yeah. I didn't, I thought, I, it crossed my mind, I thought, should I tell my parents? And I thought, I can't tell my parents, I'll go to the police. He'll lose his job. So I never did. It was slowly getting to that point where I think she was starting to acknowledge just how harmful and abusive this was. Um, so we had quite a frank conversation about that and I know it was incredibly difficult for her. So I am Dr Charlotte Proudman. I'm a barrister at Goldsmith Chambers specialising in family law, in particular violence against women and girls. Um, I do an awful lot of cases involving rape, domestic abuse and coercive and controlling behaviour largely representing mothers. As the court case over access to their child progressed, Kate's solicitors began to understand the gravity of what she had experienced in her marriage. When they realised she was a victim of abuse, they brought in Charlotte Proudman to represent her, a barrister who unambiguously describes herself as a feminist and who knows all too well that the kind of coercive and controlling abuse Kate suffered is very hard to prove in a court of law. And I think she felt quite embarrassed about speaking about these things, not only with me, but the idea of then having to speak to the court. And I remember talking through the stuff that we've discussed in, in when I'd wake up and he'd started having sex with me, and I remember my barrister stopping me and saying, Kate, do you know what you've just described? 
And I remember saying, well, yes, but we were married. And she said, no, what you've just described is rape. And she said, the question is, do you want to pursue that? And that was a really big decision. Um, but ultimately, I know it was the right one. And I, I said, yes. She knew that she had to do everything she could to protect her child. And the only way she could do that was to speak openly and honestly about what had happened to her in the marriage, even if she knew it was going to be extremely difficult to prove these allegations. What I wanted to make sure, and I certainly hope for, was that the judge could see her, not only in the powerful position that she's in now as a Member of Parliament, but remembering the position that she was in at the time when she was abused, which was a very different position. Economically, she was very vulnerable and a much lesser paid job, very much financially reliant and controlled by him. Um, and she was experiencing an enormous amount of abuse, which made her obviously feel very vulnerable. So in many respects, I think some of the best evidence that I see being given by uh, clients is when they're reliving the trauma, watching the cross-examination of her or of any woman in that position. And it's the usual tropes that are played out in all cases of she's lying, she's inconsistent here, she's making it up, she's exaggerating, she was asking for it, oh, she's as bad as him. As the case went to court... Over a four-day fact-finding hearing in November 2020, Kate took the stand. You had to be cross-examined on those allegations. What was that like? It was awful. It was a day and a half in the witness box, and it was draining. And you have to talk about the most intimate things in a courtroom with people you don't know. I think there was only one instance where I actually cried in the courtroom. The rest of the time I managed to hold it together. But I did cry and that's when I was was talking about um, our wedding night and, and how rough he'd been with me. Many of the issues the court case dealt with are complicated and delicate. For example, the judge examined what it means to initiate sex with someone who is asleep. The judge said... The difficulty of submission rather than consenting to sexual intercourse is a complex one. However, unconscious, the question of consent cannot arise. She describes crying as this happened and his never apologising or recognising what he had done. Sometimes he'd, I'd actually wake up and he would have just started having sex with me. I'd have been asleep. Um, And sometimes I'd grit my teeth and just think, we're married. And other times I'd get upset. Sometimes he'd just carry on. He'd tell me not to be so fucking pathetic. Um, Other times, if I was lucky, he he would stop. But those were the times when he lost his temper and would kick me. Actually kicking me out of the bed. He'd just keep on kicking and kicking and kicking until I rolled out of the bed. Um, And I'd just go and lock myself in the bathroom again. And I'd just be in bits. She was, I find, humiliated by this. From the outside, it looked as if the Griffiths were happy, successful. But that's exactly why it's important that we, the public, hear about a case like Griffiths v Griffiths. Because abuse can, and does, happen to anyone. It seemed to me, this must send out a message to so many women... You come across so many cases in family courts where women are the subject of domestic abuse and rape, but they're often 
poor, working-class, young women who have no status and probably think no one is on their side. They're often immigrants who don't speak English as a first language and, and, and they think they're on their own. But here, you've got people who are the very opposite of that. They've got all the support and all the help and all the education, and yet still it can happen. You know, The fact that it can happen to Kate Griffith, it must, it must do an awful lot of good for women across the world to think there's nothing to be ashamed of here. Family court judges are often criticised for the way they treat domestic abuse cases. Last year, a challenge in the Court of Appeal gave shocking examples of some judges' ignorance of what constitutes domestic abuse and even rape. Cases like one where a judge claimed that if a woman said no but did not physically struggle and fight against the man forcing himself on her, she must be consenting to sex. But the way the judge in this case, Judge Williscroft, came to her conclusions was nuanced, methodical and sophisticated. And I remember very clearly, uh, on the, I think it was on the first day, she said that she'd obviously been through all the statements and she wasn't just going to be looking at those few incidents. She preferred to look um, at the much wider picture. Those were her exact words. When it came to coercive control and domestic abuse, she wanted to look at the wider picture. She triangulated the evidence. And it's difficult evaluating evidence of domestic abuse, especially coercive control. But there was some corroborating evidence, such as contemporaneous texts. There was evidence from Kate Griffith's family and from two of her friends. And Judge Willescroft looked at all this, as well as admissions on some of the allegations from Andrew Griffiths himself, who frequently downplayed and tried to minimise his own behaviour. Andrew Griffiths was a lengthy responder to most questions, wanting to put an answer in context. It reflected a powerful person, comfortable in a challenging setting, which is relevant to consider the power imbalance in their relationship. This judge got it, that a powerful man was abusing his power and then attempting to control the narrative. In court, she watched him do it. It was very much... Remember who I am. But remember, all of this was a secret. All of this was bound by the privacy of the family court. Everything you have heard so far, it was just Brian and I reading about it on our own. Andrew Griffiths could have run again for office and no one would have known anything about what had emerged in court. And so last January, Brian and I agreed to work together. We were going to launch a public interest argument to say, on this occasion, and given the people involved, this judgment should be published. And so we went to court. Twice. We argued that publishing would show victims of domestic abuse that the family justice system can protect them, that some judges do understand coercive and controlling behaviour. We argued that this man had held the highest elected office. The public interest in knowing who Andrew Griffiths really was, we said, was overwhelming. We argued that it would be an outrage if he could use the family court to keep the judgment secret and protect himself, effectively banning his wife from ever being able to say a judge had believed her. The great problem with covering family courts is working out 
what the case is about and which case to attend. The rules say that journalists can attend family courts, but all the cases are listed by numbers. So how do you know which case you want to attend? I mean, I would liken it to football matches being listed by the tax codes of their clubs. Over the years, Brian has developed a way of decoding this listing system. But even once we'd found the case and got hold of the judgment, we faced some really significant hurdles. It, it was obvious that when you look down the road, that we're not in a flat sprint here. You're going to identify a victim of sex abuse. The law says you can't identify a victim of sex abuse unless the victim agrees. So that's the first hurdle. We needed Kate Griffiths on board. A few weeks after Judge Williscroft's judgment came through, you found out that two journalists, so myself and Brian Farmer from PA Media, wanted mm. to read the judgment. Mm. Um, we hadn't seen it at that point. Mm. Um, and then I think your solicitor told you that we wanted to publish it, yes. very large amounts, of it, in fact, most yes. of it. How did that feel to you? I was, I was devastated. I really was. Um, nobody wants intimate details of their life like that. Nobody wants to be seen as a victim in public and a victim of rape. But then I read through your application and I realised what you wanted, that you were looking for transparency in the family courts and ultimately to, 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 to lift that veil of secrecy so that people can see what's going on and, and hopefully bring, bring change for others that are going through that process. And when I realised that, it all just dropped into place and I knew I had to support it. So that was the first hurdle. The second hurdle is that even if you don't name a child, you're going to identify a child, you know. Andrew Griffiths argued that publication would harm their child and would have a catastrophic impact on his relationship with them. We argued that he had already jeopardised that relationship. You Google Andrew Griffiths' name and that's what it comes up with, sexting. So it seemed to me as if it's, it's like storm clouds in a clear sky, you know. The child is too young now to appreciate reports about sexting and, and, and what, the, what Andrew Griffiths did. But at some point, the child will discover about Andrew Griffiths sexting. So the child is going to suffer teasing at school at some point. It seems to me inevitable. So the question is, if the child then has to discover that the father has raped the mother, that's another storm cloud. How much additional harm can be done by, by the second storm cloud. That's really how, how it seemed to me, and that was how we tried to argue it. They were always going to find out whether I had supported publication or not. At some point, it's an awful fact that I'm going to have to sit down and have this conversation. And I am confident that I can support my child through this. But ultimately, it's not the publication that will have brought it to their attention. It's, it's his actions. There was a third hurdle, a financial one. Trying to mount a legal argument is expensive and takes up a lot of time. I needed some backup. I called my editor, Basha, here at Tortoise. Together we worked on the case and Tortoise funded the investigation and the services of a solicitor and a barrister costing thousands and thousands of pounds. And in July 2021, we went to the Royal Courts of Justice to make our case. Our barrister made a compelling, legally detailed argument for why we should be allowed to report. And then Brian stood up and just made it all so simple. 
The public must, in, in principle, have a right to know that a man who was an MP and minister has been found by a British judge in a British courtroom to have raped someone. If a woman makes a complaint of rape to the police and a man is charged, he's named. We can be told that the Prime Minister is under investigation for who's buying his wallpaper and that an MP can pocket over £100,000 for a second job, which is basically lobbying for his paymasters. Yet the public can't be told that an MP has raped his wife because of the secrecy of the family court. If we can't identify Andrew Griffiths, the legal system has protected him and not his victim, and the abuser wins. And surely nobody who legislated for family court hearings to be held in private could have intended that. I remember you telling me um, in the you know seven or eight months that we've known each other mm. that constituents have mm. been coming to you with this mm. kind of story. Yeah. But you've been very constrained, haven't you? Yes. I've been silenced, in effect, by the courts. I haven't been able to say anything. Hearing our case, a new judge, Mrs Justice Leaven in the High Court, granted us the right to publish. That was in July. But then Andrew Griffiths appealed. It meant another hearing, more costs, more time. He wasn't giving up. Financially, the whole thing has cost Kate Griffiths everything. If you hadn't been an MP, could you have done this court case? No, no I would have to have just given up and handed my child over. By contrast, Andrew Griffiths has been represented for free. So he knows he can keep on dragging me back to court and it's not costing him a penny. And then, just before Christmas, the Court of Appeal judgment came through. BBC Radio Derby. Update. With the latest BBC News, I'm Wesley Mallon. Former Conservative Minister and MP for Burton, Andrew Griffiths, has been found to have raped and physically abused his wife. We won. Twice. In the end, it took 12 months, two journalists, one tortoise, six barristers, five judges and many, many tens of thousands of pounds. After everything that's happened and everything is out there now, how do you feel? It's like a feeling of freedom. I'm no longer silenced by the courts. I can speak out. It's thrown a light on, on his lies and how he was trying to spin it. Um, but ultimately, it gives me an even stronger platform now to be able to bring my personal experience to what I want to do to help, to help other victims. Having committed to her voters to campaign on behalf of domestic abuse victims, four days after we were allowed to publish her story, Kate Griffith stood up in the House of Commons and asked this. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Yeah. Does my right honourable friend think it's right that victims of rape and domestic abuse should have to pay child contact costs to maintain their abuser's contact with their child? Mm. Yeah. Minister. Well, I, by the way, I first of all add my comments to those of the Secretary of State in terms of the experience of my honourable friend. She has been incredibly courageous. You'd been ordered to pay 50% of the costs of making sure that contact with your provenly abusive mm -hmm. ex-husband yes. was safe for your child. Even in light of the serious findings made against him in the fact find, 
I was still being ordered to pay 50% of the costs and to still facilitate contact. It's not right. It's almost like, it feels like a continuation of the coercive control and the abuse. Should it have been this hard, taken this long and this much money for the truth to be told? It's interesting you say that. I know of two other cases. One case, a barrister was the victim. I know of another case where there are allegations against someone who's a part-time judge. But the difficulty is that these cases are listed by number in scores of courts where no one ever goes. You can't see the names. And that's the problem with this case. If a government minister can be in a case hiding behind a, a, a number on a wet Wednesday in Derby Family Court, how many other people are hiding behind those cases? I frankly think it's a scandal. And, and the question I would ask, and I suspect the public would ask, is who else is hiding in these family courts? If it took so much for us to bring you this story, imagine what else might be buried in our family courts. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. It was written and reported by Louise Tickle. The producer was Gemma Newby. The editor was me, Basha Cummings, with sound design by Carla Patella. This story says a lot about what we at Tortoise are for, a journalism that is an agent of change. And so to support Tortoise and the kind of journalism that we do, you can become a member of our newsroom. By joining us, you'll have a seat at the table. You can join our thinkings where we discuss and refine story ideas. And you'll get access to all the other things that we do, our daily news emails, our live events and our data journalism. To join, just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. If you've been affected by what you've heard in this podcast, you can contact the charity Rights of Women, which provides women with free, confidential legal advice by specialist women solicitors and barristers. Thank you and see you next week. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward 
forward slash book.